0: Hi, i'm laura friedman and i'm the president of the foundation for middle east peace today is october 17th 2023 earlier today the foundation for middle east peace hosted an online briefing on the situation in gaza we wanted to bring this very rich and timely conversation to the widest possible audience so so we are releasing it here as a slightly longer than usual episode of fmep's occupied thoughts podcast we hope you find the discussion illuminating informative, and perhaps challenging as you grapple with the very dire developments of recent days, as well as their broader context and implications for the future. Hello and welcome. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Tuesday, October 17th. I'm here in Washington, DC, and we are holding an update today on the situation in the Gaza Strip. Um, Some quick housekeeping. Um, As always with the FMEP webinars, the format is going to be a conversation between me and our three guests. Uh, We will be taking questions throughout the conversation. You can put those in the Q&A box. Um, We will be keeping an eye on the Q&A box and we'll get to those as we can. Um, Don't put them in the chat box or anywhere else um, because we won't see those. Um, I want to let people know this is being recorded and is also being live streamed on Facebook. Thank you to everyone who's joining us on Facebook today. Um, And last we have uh, enabled closed captioning function for anyone who wants that or needs that. So you can read the discussion and follow along there. And I want to say I am grateful to our guests for joining us today and I'm grateful for for everyone who's joining us to to learn more uh, this morning. Um, Let me quickly introduce our guests. Um, There are full bios for all of them available on the FMAP website. Um, You should check that um, because there will be a video and audio version of this and resources that'll be posted. I think those will also be posted um, in the chat box throughout this this call. Um, But today we have with us, first, we have Tanya Hari. Tanya is the executive director of Gisha, the Legal Center for Freedom of Movement. Uh, We have Noor Odeh, who is an award-winning journalist and a respected political activist, and we have Omar Shakir, who is the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. Um, Welcome all of you, and I I just want to say I rely on all of you, and I'm so grateful for for your work in general, and and in particular at this incredibly dark time, and I'm grateful for your your joining us today. So. before we get into it, I want to lay out some brief context. I'm guessing that most people who are on this webinar, attending this webinar, know what's going on, but you know, for the record, and you know, people are watching this who maybe don't know so much. Um, so the brief context is this. On October 7th, that is 10 days ago, Palestinian militants broke through the Israeli barrier surrounding Gaza. For many hours, they operated um, with remarkable freeness um, inside Israel. Um, during which time they targeted both military installations and civilians. Uh, During that time, they massacred more than 1300 people. These are killings that did not distinguish between military and civilians um, and the people who were killed included men, women, children, and the elderly, including entire families. Um, they injured an even larger number of Israelis, including civilians. And according to the Israeli government's latest numbers, they took around 100—not they took 199 hostages. Again, we're talking here: men, women, children, babies, elderly, and took them back to the Gaza Strip. And um, to be clear, the dead, injured, and kidnapped include Jewish Israelis, Palestinian citizens of Israel, and foreigners. Um, and To be clear, all of these actions um, by these militants constitute war crimes under international law. Um, In the immediate aftermath of this attack, Israel launched a massive military campaign against the Gaza Strip, which was and remains sealed. No way in, no way out for the people there. Israel has publicly stated, um, well they stated on October 14th, so three days ago, that at that time they had dropped 6,000 bombs in the first few days of that um, assault. These bombings have been accompanied by a ramping up of the 16-year-long siege on Gaza, with Israel cutting off and announcing they were cutting off electricity, water, food, and fuel. There has been no entry of humanitarian aid or ability for even foreign nationals to leave, and notably Israel has repeatedly bombed the border crossing into Egypt. Um, The language of Israeli officials from the outset of this military campaign has made clear repeatedly that they are treating all of Gaza and all Palestinians in Gaza as targets. Um, A senior Israeli official referred to Palestinians in Gaza as human animals, and numerous Israeli political figures have stated explicitly that they do not see a distinction between militants and civilians. And here we're talking about women, children, elderly, um, seeing everyone as legitimate targets. According to numbers released yesterday, um, this is by the Palestinian Ministry of Health, the, the Israeli assault on Gaza has so far killed nearly 3,000 Palestinians. Those numbers are going to be undercounting because they do not include the bombings that we had overnight in South Gaza, Southern Gaza. This is the area that Israel told Palestinians from Northern Gaza to move to so they wouldn't get bombed in Northern Gaza. And it doesn't include the estimated more than a thousand human beings who are believed to be buried under the rubble of bombed homes and high rise buildings across the Gaza Strip, um, which has no capacity to launch any kind of um, rescue operations. Of those more than 3000 killed so far by Israel's military action, roughly half are children. And reportedly these attacks have wiped out Um, at least 45 entire families, every generation of those families. Um, They have displaced more than 1 million Palestinians, and the entire population is now, after having everything cut off for more than a week, is facing starvation, water deprivation, lack of medical care due to Israel bombing hospitals and killing doctors and not permitting medical supplies in, and the very real possibility of the outbreak of cholera. I just wanna say again, much like I said earlier, all of those actions are illegal under international law. So we're not gonna dive in. That's the background. I mean, those are, those are like, that's not even like debatable background. Stuff can be debated that those are like, you know whether you think they're good facts or bad facts, those are facts. So um, I'm gonna start with you, Noor. Um, and Noor, you're coming to us uh, from Ramallah, correct? Yes. So the last 11 days have been a complete horror for everyone. Um, we're focusing on Gaza here. I'm sure most of our viewers have been watching and trying to follow events as they unfold, but media coverage, I would argue, has been, um, I can say this generously, has been unbalanced. Um, there are very few Palestinian voices, there are many Israeli voices, and, and from the headlines to the stories, um, it is really focused on um, Israeli anguish and grief and anger and less on um, Palestinian rights, um, at least in the US and, and the European English language media. So can you talk about what the situation looks like from your vantage point in Gaza, in contact with people on the ground? i sorry, you're in Ramallah, but you're in contact with people on the ground in Gaza. Give us the lay of the land of what you're seeing.
1: Uh, well thank you for having me first of all um i have to say first that i lived uh, in gaza for many years and i reported there uh for many years so the friends uh, and colleagues i have there are family these are people that i've worked with during the darkest hours uh we braved uh difficult conditions and and uh, and danger together we covered uh different israeli assaults we covered the palestinian split and the internal fighting and um, these are pros. I know them. I know how much they can endure. And today, none of them were able to talk. None of them had anything to say. They just, they were out of words. And that's a lot for a journalist. That's that's something that, you know, as journalists, as people whose job is to tell the story, this is a very devastating place to be. Um, People are thirsty, it's not an exaggeration. Uh, um, Those who have children are uh, sparing uh, the uh, clean water they have uh, to give it to to the kids. Um, Women in particular, um, you know, have a whole host of other issues to worry about. Uh, And they're also rationing out food because when you eat, you have to drink, you have to use the bathroom. And if you've been displaced once, twice, or three times, like many of, of, of the people there, Um, then, you know, you have no proper bathroom to go to. So just the basic, um, the basic details of life have become uh, almost impossible. There's no dignity in being displaced in this manner. Um, When you have, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 people crammed in a school that was possibly equipped to receive two to 4,000 people, there is no dignity in that. Uh, You see the destitute and business people, all crammed in the same conditions, all reduced to nothing. Um, united perhaps in grief, united in fear uh, and in despair. They, um, the only thing they ask uh, those of us in the outside world, those of us living in the luxury of the West Bank, so to speak, is whether there's news that uh, the Rafah Crossing will, will open, not so that they can leave, that's another thing I think we'll talk about. But just so that they know that water and fuel will come in, that there will be medicine if they need to go to the hospital. Uh, so it is, it is um, you know, Gaza has endured a lot, um, not just in the past 17 years, but throughout our modern history since the Nakba. Gaza has been a place that has been punished and pounded one too many times, so it's known for being able to take it. It's not anymore. It's at a breaking point. Um, the doctors, the paramedics, um, they they just can't take it anymore because these are not people who are detached. So this the the image that you have the the what you get out of Gaza is just this combination of pain. When you see doctors who are treating who haven't slept properly in seven days or 10 days, and while they're treating the injured, they receive their family, right? Because their home has been bombarded, and you see that unfold in front of your eyes, uh, especially in the South, where coverage is still uh, continuing more regularly than in Gaza City. In Gaza City, we're getting the skyline, right? We're seeing the plumes, but in Rafah and, and, and Khan Yunis, this is where we're able to see more of ordinary people and what is happening to them. And it's just um, gut wrenching. What I'm afraid of is that we haven't seen the worst of it yet. And the fact that no, nobody's willing to talk about a truth uh, even for a few hours to allow fuel and water and medicine in, um, I, I can't even begin to imagine what we're going to be seeing tomorrow when fuel runs out, because that's when it will run out. Um, what kind of you know, rashes uh, are already breaking out in, in the shelters? What will that mean to all these people, to all these dignified people who've lost everything? It's heartbreaking, maybe that's poetic to say, but I think more, more terrifying perhaps is that it's setting a new threshold of just how much brutality will be tolerated. Um, Not just here, by the way. I think this is a a new standard, a new threshold worldwide. Because once the dust settles here, every country that wants to commit crimes and atrocities will be looking square in the eyes of the Americans and the Europeans who've allowed this, enabled it, and and they will tell them, you let that happen in Gaza, now we have a free hand. And I think that is one of the most ominous things about what's happening in Gaza, is that it will set the tone for just how much inhumanity and depravity is allowed. And, and I shudder, I shudder to think about that.
0: Thank you, Noor. I, I, as you're saying those words, I was thinking about a point that someone smarter than me had been making in a conversation we were having earlier in the week, which is this, this question of, Is there a responsibility that the argument that is heard a great deal in the United States on media from Israeli spokespeople and defenders saying every death is the fault of Hamas It's not our fault. We dropped the bomb but it's their fault. And the 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 what that means in terms of 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 removing responsibility and agency in a war, I try to imagine that that logic applied in war. There's no red lines you can do anything you just blame the other guy. Um, it's um, all right. So I want to come now to Tanya. Um, all right, Tanya, I, I want to take a moment here and go back to the basis. I, I laid out the context for the current moment, but that yeah, you know, this this it doesn't start on October seventh. the 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 challenges of Gaza don't start, you know, in twenty twenty three, and the problems of Gaza don't start with this current government um, of Israel or with Hamas. Um, so can you? Look, for I actually wrote a question because I I don't trust myself because there's so much I want to ask. For years, it seems like people don't really talk or think about Gaza except when there's a military crisis, except when there's rockets coming out or there's bombs coming in. And reading and watching the news, one gets the sense that not everyone understands what the situation in Gaza was like prior to the start of this crisis. So can you take a moment here and talk about how we got here? What has been Israel's policy toward Gaza over the past 17 years and what that has meant on the ground. In my introduction, I talked about cutting off of fuel and water and electricity as being a ramping up of the prior situation. Can you put some flesh on that and help our audience understand how it is that in 2023, long after Ariel Sharon's unilateral quote-unquote disengagement from Gaza, Israel is in a position where it can simply cut off the electricity and water. Or block entry and exit of every human being and all you know, goods and, and services and, and prevent people from, from getting the help um, that they need.
2: Okay, that, those are those are big questions. And uh, I'm gonna t- try to be brief. Um, but I think you know the, the answer is in the question itself, of course. And it, that, that's precisely it, right? Uh, Israel never left Gaza. 18 years after the so-called disengagement, uh, when Israel removed its military installations and settlements from the territory, um, it really continues to have extensive and we would say effective control over the Strip. Mainly through its control over movement, and that's why Gisha's mandate and focus is on the issue of movement. But you know, movement in in a broader sense, because it's not just entry and exit of goods, and you know what what a normal person might think of as as movement and access. It's much broader than that. It's also control of civilian infrastructure. So most of the supply of electricity, the um, only supply of clean water, it's over the Palestinian population registry. So Israel still determines who is thought of as a resident of Gaza, who can be admitted into the Palestinian population registry and and, hold a Palestinian ID card, um, which then determines where a person can live. Um, So, you know, over internet as well, um, uh, you know, over the ability of Gaza to function at a higher level than where it's it is now, which is 2G Um, so so many aspects of life that Israel still maintains control and basically it's used that control um, for decades, not just since since 2007 which we'll get to in a second but really for decades, as Noor um, alluded to, to isolate Gaza, to pressure, um, to punish, basically for the achievement of political goals. And I I would say it's commonly thought that all of the restrictions on Gaza, that everything that Israel has done, at least in Israel, I'm speaking from Israel um, as an Israeli, you know, working in an Israeli context. So it's certainly common here in Israel, but I think also in a lot of other parts of the world, uh, a misconception that the restrictions are all geared towards combating uh, security threats. Um, And and that's just simply not the case. Um, Israel has used its control to achieve political goals, to control the demographics of the region, um, basically preventing people in Gaza from moving to the West Bank, encouraging in many cases people from the West Bank to move to Gaza. Um, uh, Using movement as a form of pressure, not so, you know, limiting what can come in, what can go out, who can travel, not because it's difficult or dangerous to screen goods or people, but really just as a means of pressure and punishment. So I think that that's something that's really important for audiences to understand. It didn't start, um, certainly not on October 7th and not even in 2007 when Hamas came to power in Gaza. That's another misconception that all of this is, is just because of Hamas. If Hamas were to disappear, Gaza could have become Singapore. Um, And that's also just simply not the case. We're talking about a process that's happened over decades of slowly closing Gaza to the point of what we see now, which is an absolutely hermetic closure. But yeah, even before then, a kind of isolation of the territory that led to political fragmentation, fragmentation also of civil society, of of academia, of families, um, families that have been split apart because of this long process. Of course, you can speak on Skype and all of these things, but it's not the same. Um, So I think if you're asking about the ramifications of all of these policies, You know, in a nutshell, of course, um, uh, the fracturing of society poverty, um, hopelessness, brain drain. Um, and I would say also, you know, a, a point about the political situation, also the entrenchment of Hamas's rule. So rather than all of this being geared actually to eradicate them or remove them, it's really led to an entrenchment of the government and and a, a kind of new carving out of the space as sort of three entities. Um, or maybe two, you know, Israel and the West Bank is one and Gaza is this kind of separate side uh, entity um, ruled by Hamas. So, so certainly in the last few years, I would say the goals of the policy haven't necessarily been to remove um, Hamas, but, but to keep them entrenched, um, a kind of false perception that Israel could man- manage the conflict. Um, that it could manage uh, the situation in Gaza and and yeah unfortunately we're seeing all of this blow up in our faces, literally, Um, I do want to say that you know all of this, uh, um, you know, I, I say this without by any means justifying what happened. On October seventh, and I hope that that goes without saying. But I will say it because I think a lot of people think that if we say the situation was bad before, or we say that there are there's a context to what's happening, that that can somehow be twisted into a, um, a rationale for what happened on October seventh. I think that there, you know, are people who have chosen to use um, force as a means of achieving their political goals. But the ideology that um, targets civilians, um, that harms them on purpose, that that holds hostages, um, including children without their parents, I think is an ideology, of course, that everyone can reject, and um, and I would hope that that would apply universally, and and that. We would all also look at the heinous crimes um, being committed by Israel now in Gaza, and recognize that civilians need protection, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, and that the actions of of governments or you know political actors don't give an excuse um, to engage in these heinous crimes, um, no matter what.
0: Thanks, Tanya, and I, I appreciate your comments at the end very much as well. The, the, the. As I said in my introduction, the war crimes were committed on October 7th, um, which um, it, it, that's beyond question. Um, this webinar is focusing on what's happening since then and, and looking at the situation for Palestinians. That does not mean that that is in any way um, slighting um, the, the trauma and, that, that Israelis felt on October 7th and from October 7th. And since then, I do want to add on what you're saying, just I'm thinking as I'm listening to, you, I'm thinking about the, the discourse in the United States and on social media. And, you know, we mentioned, we both mentioned um, 2006, 2007, 2006 was the Palestinian legislative elections, 2007 was when after the results of those elections were rejected, there was effectively a, 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 an internationally impact um, repudiation of the results. And eventually we have Gaza in the hands of Hamas. I think it's really important to emphasize that A, the vast majority of people in Gaza did not vote in those elections. They were either not born or were children. That's how long it's been since we had elections. So when you hear people say, well, they voted for Hamas, no, most of those people didn't ever vote. On top of that, I think it's important to note that that Hamas did not win a majority anywhere in Palestine and they did not win a majority in any district of Gaza. They won a plurality. Um, And of what's left of that plurality, you can say maybe 8% of the people who are currently in Gaza actually voted for Hamas at the time. Um, and I would just add as someone who was a monitor of those elections on the ground, um, and this is well recorded, it's not a disputed um, to, a disputed fact. Um, Hamas did not run on a, we want to kill Jews or we're looking for resistance. They ran on as the party of change and reform and their baseline argument was throw the bastards out. They're corrupt and they've been in power for 15 years and they haven't achieved anything. Um, that's the 2006 elections, just as a reality check for people who say, ah, men, women, children, they're all guilty they voted for Hamas. That is simply not accurate. Um, Okay, Omar, coming to you. So uh, Human Rights Watch, that's you, um, has repeatedly in the past over the years, raised alarms about Israel's policies vis-a-vis Gaza, and today is loudly sounding the alarm about the scale of the catastrophe that's being inflicted on Gaza, which clearly at this point has no end in sight. And as Noor said, we all fear that we have not yet seen the worst. Can you dig into this for us from a human rights perspective, from the international human rights defender's perspective, what you see that is going on in Gaza now?
3: Yeah, and I think, thank you, Laura, for having this conversation. Always an honor to be on with Tanya and Noor. Um, And, you know, I just echo what others have said, which is that I think we're really in an unprecedented place, an abyss that I think um, as dark as Israel-Palestine has been for many years or um, longer. It's something I could not have fathomed two weeks ago that we'd be at this point. Um, so in terms of your question, Lara, I mean, um, you know, the point that we try to always make is that, um, you know, the bloodshed and violence did not start on October 7th, because that seems to be where a lot of people put their start date. Um, you know, I think a few days before at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, we were noting how 2023 was a year of unprecedented repression and violence of Palestinians. You had the highest number of Palestinians killed in the West Bank since the UN uh, began systematically recording fatalities, one every two days, virtually, um, about at that rate. And that was in the first nine months of 2023. You had more Palestinians held without trial or charge than in any other point in 30 years, according to figures from the Israeli prison services. And the closure of Gaza, which, Tanya noted, and, you know, had entered its 17th year. And I mean, the UN had warned about Gaza being unlivable Uh, in 2020. uh, And we're in October 2023. And, um, you know, 80% of the population was relying on humanitarian aid. So I think, um, you know, for us, we had been sort of sounding the alarm calling for lifting the closure calling urgently. For the international community to address these issues, and so what we've seen since October seventh is um, of a scale that is something we haven't seen in years. But I think is built on um, the abuses we've seen taking place over this long, you know, period of time. So from you know, from international law perspective, again, obviously echoing Lara what you just said and what Tanya and others have said, you know, that the, the the heinous attack by Hamas involved obviously the commission of uh, clear war crimes, deliberately killing civilians, as well as um, taking, uh, you know, women and children as hostages, we can say more on that, but just to keep on the focus of the, you know, if the webinar, the, you know, the actions you noted to cut the electricity, the water, the internet, um, the fuel, which is necessary to run generators, which is what hospitals are now relying on, as well as homes without electricity and the fuels running out, Um, all of the internet, all of these things, you know, are textbook collective punishment because you're punishing the entire population of Gaza. And you noted uh, that, you know, many of them, half of them about our children for the actions of individuals. And, um, you know, international humanitarian law was precisely built on the idea of distinguishing between, um, you know, um, uh, 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 distinguishing between civilians and combatants, but also, you know, not, you know, not, Holding the entire population responsible for the acts of individuals. Starvation as a tool of war is also a war crime under international law. So I think we've been, you know, I think that's an important principle here because the rhetoric of the Israeli government, and we've seen it coming from multiple levels from the president to their diplomatic foreign minister to their defense minister, has been pretty clear that they hold the entire people of Gaza responsible uh, for what took place. And that's simply, um, you know, a, a criminal intent under international law, an intent to commit, uh, you know, a war crime. Um, The other thing we're seeing, obviously, in Gaza is just relentless bombardment of a scale that, again, we just haven't seen. Human Rights Watch has documented many sorts of abuses when it comes to Israeli airstrikes over the years, um, strikes that target apparent civilian infrastructure, knocking down high-rise buildings with no apparent military target that have Hundreds of homes and, um, you know, businesses. Now we're seeing entire neighborhoods or blocks reduced to rubble. I mean, there is no. Uh, way uh, that one could conceive of even a justification for something of that scale that, you know, targets a legitimate military target. Uh, We've seen strikes in the past that wipe out entire families, again, with no apparent military target. Again, as you noted in your introduction, we're seeing that take place again. Um, We're seeing um, as well, you know, strikes that look indiscriminate, that look disproportionate. Let's remember Gaza is one of the most densely populated areas on earth. When you drop bombs, with wide area effects in a densely populated area it is foreseeable that there will be harm to civilians so it shouldn't surprise us that that we see hundreds of civilians including children killed we've also documented the use of white white phosphorus um, in the port area of Gaza and let's be clear this is when used in a in, in densely populated civilian areas it's unlawful because white phosphorus causes excruciating burns it can burn structures it is um you know an incendiary weapon that is indiscriminate when used in populated Um, areas. We're also seeing, of course, um, you know, the Israeli government um, giving indications that it intends, as Noor noted, this is kind of the beginning. So there are real concerns about what could take place Um, You know, we know Israel has deliberately targeted civilians before, um, and uh, even, you know, they're posting images of of these strikes. So I think the risks of a ground um, invasion are are high. But let's not forget that even as the ground invasion hasn't started, the bombardment continues. And then, of course, amidst all of this, you have the evacuation order, which was issued for half of Gaza. You know, what One million people, uh, hundreds of thousands of whom um, have left. Let's remember, seventy percent of that population, as was noted, are refugees that already fled an impending, uh, or the descendants of refugees that fled an impending Israeli army uh, invasion. Um, you know, uh, decades ago in 1948, uh, many of them have left. Many of them are now, um, you know, looking uh, with relatives or in other places with friends if they have them. Um, you know, under bombardment, with, without electricity, depending on water that's unfit for human consumption with water being cut without internet um you know and so i think we're it's it's it's, it's a desperate situation you know there will be death because if these you know children will be killed because of no water no electricity they may have already been in that situation there are people buried under the rubble as you noted so it's um it's extremely extremely dire and i think um you know uh, as the as, I don't I don't have any other words, but what the former what the UN coordinator um, for humanitarian relief I believe is the title said the other day, which is um, humanity is being tested and, and is failing.
0: Thank you for that. All right, before we go into the deeper stuff, I this is my I, I want to throw a question at all of you. That's something that I I want to know your thoughts on, which is um, the terminology. All right, I wanna, and, and you, if you don't wanna answer us, you can, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on, on language that you or your organization uses in talking about the current crisis. I have been using terms like incipient genocide and ethnic cleansing. Um, I base my use of the term genocide on my understanding of the Rome Statute and what that means. Um, but there's a lot of, each of these words, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, genocide have a tremendous weight and they become debated, that becomes a debate unto itself. So um, I'd like to ask you and starting with, we'll go in the same order here, so Noor, Tanya, and then Omar, and quickly, this is a quick answer because we have a ton to cover. So, Um, Noor, do you want to weigh in on this?
1: Look, I think um, the current uh, Israeli government, and even before, has proven that it's very honest when it comes to um, expressing intent and and, uh, views on Palestinians. And Israeli leaders have been very clear about their intent regarding Palestinians. And so I think, in my view, and I'm not a, a legal expert, but I've seen legal analysis to the effect, yes, a genocide is happening. It, is, it has been happening for some time. Now we see it on a very monstrous scale. But I do think that uh, what we're seeing right now, yes, rises to the level of that. Uh, heinous crime and ethnic cleansing is happening. It's happening in the West Bank as well, uh, under the cover of the uh, of what is happening in Gaza. There are communities that are being expelled. Um, so I am comfortable with both with p- both terms, and it is especially in light of the fact that it it seems that this bombardment is intent on pushing people into the Sinai by fire. So we will starve you. We will make you thirsty, and we will bomb you, no matter where you go, until you head to Egypt. Um, and and people are are resisting that, and 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 for a good cause, and and because of collective trauma. Um, so yeah, I am I am comfortable with those terms.
0: Thanks, and we'll get into the Egypt part in the next round. Tanya, your thoughts.
2: Um, the you know, this this question is complicated for me. I think um, you know, as a as an Israeli organization, uh we're we're in a kind of crossroads. We're holding a lot right now, um, as I'm sure people can imagine. And I think, you know, everyone's watching uh, every word that we say. And so I do think that, you know, um I, I'm the director of this organization, and I'm trying to be as precise as possible um, in in the terminology that we're using. And and yet at the same time, I think that the um, extremeness, for lack of a better word, I didn't sleep so much last night, you know, uh, of the situation that we're seeing really calls upon us to use the terminology that's accurate, but also that um, that, that evokes, you know, the, the sense of horror at what we're seeing. And so I do think, though, that we need to be careful, we need to be precise. Um, obviously, the, the term genocide um, it, it is very loaded inside of Israel and and for good reason. Um, but but I, I think that I what I'm trying to do at this moment is to show uh, rather than tell Um, So to try to describe the situation and have people reach the conclusions that they'll reach, and I think that, particularly in Israel, I'll say, I think, um, you know, my, my feeds are certainly showing what's happening in Gaza, but if I watch the news in Israel, There is maybe a minute or two of the nightly uh, broadcast that is showing, you know, maybe some bombed out buildings, but your people in Israel aren't seeing What the rest of the world is seeing. So I would just say that I don't have an exact, you know, clear answer about which term yes um, and when exactly. I think that's also a question, but I'll just say that for me right now it's important to show what's happening to give the information and to lead people to the conclusions um,
1: that, that I think they should be reaching themselves.
0: Thank you. Omar?
3: So, I mean, you know, a genocide determination obviously is, is a legal one. It's one that, you know, n- you know, human rights organization doesn't reach lightly. It takes months of compiling the evidence, both of the scale of atrocities and, go- and evidence of a government plan. So it's not something that, um, you know, it took us a long time on apartheid, which is also a crime against humanity and a persecution to reach that determination. So it's not something that we reach lightly and it's not something we would do until, and we don't also sort of write legal briefs that, you know, make the argument one way or another. We would look at the facts document them and then see how the law applies to it and know where where it is the case. But, um, you know, I think what's important at this moment, regardless of, you know, what exact legal term uh, you use, is to be clear that the Israeli government is signaling their intent to commit large scale atrocities, um, you know, mass atrocities. And I think the statements that they've been issuing about, you know, destroying Gaza, about holding the civilian population accountable, this is not an abstract hypothetical. I mean, the the acts that have already taken place, the scale of bombardment, the cuts of basic uh, vital services, that's already there. And And, you know, especially given what the international response has been, which I won't get into because I know we're going to get into that in the conversation, I think there's a real risk um, that that'll be interpreted as a green light. Um, you know, to, to do more. I don't say this again lightly. I covered Egypt. I documented likely crimes against humanity committed during the um, Rabaa massacre of 2013 after the military coup. Human Rights Watch warned in the days and weeks leading up to the dispersal in Rabaa of the risk of something of that scale happening. Not enough pressure was done. A massacre was committed. And now the architects of that of that massacre, one of them runs Egypt and has been doing so for the last decade. So so I think we're, we're trying to issue the warning sign, not only only based on some abstract statements but also based on what we're seeing on the ground let's and the last thing i'll just say um lara is we don't have i mean we as in we as in journalist fact finders don't have all the facts of what's happening in gaza and that's not an accident right it's you know um human rights watch has only once been allowed since 2008 to have our international staff enter gaza um journalists we don't have you know uh we have all the the big you know international media that are that are you know or, you know in israel but they're not inside Gaza. So even the facts of the strikes that are taking place, the people on the ground are obviously trying to survive, including our Palestinian human rights colleagues who aren't able, we rely, all of us rely on their fact finding, and they're not able to actually, uh, for the first time, to send their field staff to uh, do some of the documentation in the recent days. So we, there is a black hole of information. So that's part of why I think you know the language um, has to be, we have to kind of Parse through the information. But certainly um, I, I don't like to be an alarmist. I, I, I like to think of myself as a as an optimist when we do this work. When there have been rounds of Gaza escalations in the past, I'm usually the voice that that you know um, thinks that cooler heads will will ultimately prevail. I don't, I, I, I don't have any such feeling now, unfortunately. It's it's hard to see a way out that doesn't involve um. Things continuing to um, descend deeper into darkness.
0: Thank you, and I—I I believe my colleague put into the chat there was an article in Jewish Currents, I think, last week from an Israeli scholar of genocide. Who um, I think all of you mentioned that that there's it's both the in, signal signaling intent and then actual actions and putting those together to make a determination on on whether or not you can use the word genocide. I think. His article is called A Textbook Case of Genocide. Um, I recommend that. Um, so Omar, let me stick with you for a second. I mean, we're, we're talking about you know where things go, better, worse. There's been a lot of discussion about you know the need for humanitarian intervention, humanitarian aid. Obviously this is not merely a humanitarian crisis, but that is the immediate thing in front of us. Um, what are the most important things that need to happen in your view as Human Rights Watch to forestall Further catastrophe. I mean, is this just about getting aid in? Is it, you know, what, what do you see?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I would you know, um, list, there's a number of things, right? And I, I don't know how to even prioritize them. But I think, you know, obviously, getting aid in is the most urgent is the urgent, most urgent priority, you need, you need food entering, but it needs to be accompanied also with electricity, with water, with fuel, um, you know, th- those are the most essential things. Because, you know, even if, you know, Israel said that they restored water to part of Gaza, uh, South Gaza, but, you know, the UN has said that's about 4% of the water that Gaza normally consumes. And obviously, it's part of the strategy of getting civilians out of northern Gaza, which is, I think, problematic and unlawful, as has been noted. So I think getting, you know, and, and if you have water that electricity, as Gisha and others have said, it doesn't really do much. You need the water to be pumped. The infrastructure has been damaged. It has to be done in a holistic way. And I think that needs to be um, on the very, very top of the agenda. Um, and I won't go more into it because I don't. I don't think anyone could disagree with that point. Um, the second, the, the, not second, the other point I would say as a top uh, priority is that we need to, um, you know, we need to see calls for all parties to abide by international humanitarian law. And it, it, we're starting to see that, but it needs to be unequivocal and it needs to be very, very clear that there's a need, um, you know, for uh, the laws of war to be respected because they're clearly not being respected, uh, you know, by the various parties that are there. I think it's also critical that all all the language has a call that reiterates the importance of uh, accountability. Because I think for too often we're we're not, emphasizing that point, And we're here precisely because of decades of impunity for unlawful attacks. So I think reiterating um, the importance of accountability in the current context is essential. We also need, sorry, I should have noted earlier when talking about the cuts to electricity and water, there needs to be a call to lift the closure, because I think that's an important, it's unlawful, and we can't just act like October 6th, uh, in Gaza was it was okay i mean part of what all of our work has been was to was to signal the 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 alarm bell um you know on that i think in addition to that we it's it's really important that we have all parties highlight the need to deal with um you know the root causes here we need to deal with israel's apartheid and persecution against palestinians we need to deal with the closure of gaza we need to deal with the systematic repression that underlies these again these are not justifications nothing can justify what took place on october 7th but they can't be sort of sidelined or periphery in there obviously hostages should be released and that needs to be especially states that have um relationships with hamas and their signs are doing that there need to be con- unconditionally immediate released. There's no justification for all for hostage taking. So I think we obviously need um a- efforts on all of these um frontiers to take place, and it needs to happen yesterday.
0: All right. Um, Nora, coming back to you, and thank you, Omar. Um, coming back to you. So there's been we've 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 hinted around the issue of Egypt and the Egypt border and displacing Palestinians from the Northern West Bank, pushing to the Southern West Bank. There, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about a humanitarian corridor that would see displaced residents, including those displaced from the north, um, moved into the Sinai Desert. And this is framed by Israel um, and for people who pitch it as a humanitarian plan. I want you to talk about why this proposal is so um, concerning or triggering or traumatic um, for Palestinians and arguably anybody who knows anything about Palestinian history.
1: Thank you for asking the question because I think it's very important. I I see a lot of confused faces when that issue comes up uh, on Western media and they just don't understand why people wouldn't want to leave. The majority of residents in Gaza are refugees. These are people who were forcibly expelled in 1948 uh, um, and a little bit before that from their homes. If they live in Northern Gaza, they can literally look out in some cases for some people and see the lands uh, from which they were expelled. And we still have survivors, survivors of the Nakba. So these are not just the descendants of refugees. Generation upon generation of collective trauma, of being dispossessed, of being promised to return and then denied for 75 years that right means that the the idea of leaving your home in northern gaza and going south of el wadi still within the gaza strip was traumatic family after family of uh, friends um, you know I, I my best friend's son he's a um, second year in, in college he his father had to literally pick him up and restrain him like a little goat and put him in the car so they they can go to uh, uh, south of Wadi because he was enraged and he accused them of being a coward and doing what our grandparents did and fleeing the fighting instead of standing your ground. He kept telling him, I'm not going to be a refugee in Sina. I would rather die than to live the the sorrow that my grandparents lived. That's one side of uh, uh, the trauma. And, and north- then there are those.
0: Can I ask you to also address? There's a couple of questions in the QA box, and we hear this in the media. I want you to address the narrative which says Palestinians in the north want to abide by what Israel is saying, but Hamas won't let them. It's not letting them leave. It's telling them to stay. It's not letting them go to Egypt through Rafah. Can you just address some of those um, yeah. really, um, persistent I- narratives? I haven't heard
1: a single uh, uh, report about that, uh, to be honest, from the ground. Hamas is busy uh, uh, avoiding uh, death and uh, uh, and also clashing with the Israeli army. So it is not going to be exposing its fighters so that it can police people who are fleeing for safety. Uh, so I haven't heard or seen any of that. And I can consider myself very well informed on what's happening day to day in Gaza. I actually know people who went back. So they were in Deir al-Balah or in Khan Yunus after seeing the bombardment, after seeing the humiliation and indignities, they went back yesterday to Gaza City because they couldn't take it. And I, I, I also know people who simply didn't leave uh, uh, because they just couldn't couldn't handle it. Especially the elderly, uh, uh, you know, they they might be weak, you know that that might factor into it. But but those who are originally refugees, you know, tell their their children. We, we were refugees once, we're not gonna do it again. You leave us here, we will, we will die here. And so many of them have stayed. Egypt uh, has been, you know the first few days, uh, the border was open. But the thing about these kinds of rounds of violence is that Palestinians actually come back. They don't leave. So I know friends who've been stuck at al on the Egyptian side for 11 days now, trying to come in to Gaza because of this collective trauma, because of this fear of not being able to come back, because those who were stuck outside of Palestine in 48 or 67, most of them weren't allowed to come back either. Um, and Egypt tried uh, you know, to, keep it, to keep the crossing open and then it was bombarded by Israel. And then we heard reports uh, by you know, reputable news agencies that the uh, uh, Netanyahu's office relayed a very clear message to the Egyptians. If you allow humanitarian assistance in, we will bomb the convoys. Then we have Blinken coming in. Uh, Aside from the fact that he's attending war uh, cabinet meetings, he's also trying to figure out a way to get foreign nationals out of Gaza, or dual nationals. So Palestinians who have American uh, passports or other passports, and also Uh, internationals who were there in Gaza on on, on different uh, missions and and, and work. And Egypt, much to the admiration of Palestinians, used this as leverage and said, we will allow foreign nationals out of Gaza if you allow humanitarian assistance in. And so for the past two days, we've been stuck in this back and forth about that kind of exchange. There was news yesterday that the crossing wouldn't open. It didn't. And Israel bombed the crossing twice. There was news today. Nothing came of it. Um, I think tomorrow will be critical. uh, And and people are, you know, hoping uh, uh, that it will work. Uh, But that's as far as um, it will go. Egypt uh, um, will not allow uh, the influx of Palestinians into Sinai. And Palestinians don't want... Uh, Egypt to allow the influx of Palestinians into Sinai. Uh, so there is, uh, regardless of where we stand on the regime in uh, Egypt, and people are split on on that. There is great admiration now for the Egyptian government for with withstanding the enormous pressure it's under from the uh, Americans uh, mainly. Uh, so far. Uh, and refusing uh, this grand uh, scale displacement uh, proposal that the Israelis had been pushing for. I hope it, I hope the Egyptians can still hold on and, and not succumb to pressure because that will just be catastrophic. Nothing is temporary in this conflict. Whatever is called temporary becomes permanent. That's the lesson Palestinians cannot unlearn.
0: Thank you. Um... Tanya, I want to move to you. I, I want you to offer your thoughts on two issues that have been that have been bothering me um, in, in trying to understand what the debate is like inside Israel. What's happening? Um, the first one is what is Israeli thinking around a ceasefire? Um, except for sort of you know lefty activists, that doesn't even seem to be a word that comes up. And you know maybe in the first couple of days that was understandable, or, or you know ten days in. Um, and the second is the issue of the hostages. Um, there is a lot of focus in the U.S. Um, and certainly in the Jewish community around the hostages, around the necessity to free the hostages, which is absolutely correct. Um, it feels like from the Israeli government side, the hostages are raised when it's an issue to to justify what they're doing to Gaza, but it doesn't seem to be about actually freeing them. There doesn't actually seem to be any discussion about the imperative to free them, and and to the extent. That from what I see in the Israeli media, they're engaging hostages' families. Um, they seem to be fairly um, uninterested in in the issue of of trying to get them out alive. Can Can you address those two things?
2: Uh- yeah, I mean the first question, it's easy. Uh ceasefire is not being discussed at all. Um, the, it is not in the lexicon right now, uh, not de-escalation, not ceasefire. I'm not seeing any calls for it again, like you said, other than uh us us crazy uh you know human rights people. Um so it's just really not on the agenda. And all of the discourse is focused on um. I think a pipe dream of of sort of this rooting out of Hamas, that they're going to go in and get rid of them and you know change the, the whole map of Gaza. Um and so, you know, they're they're communicating to the public that this could take weeks, it could take months, um, that we have to be strong, that we have to hang on. Um, and it's just Completely outlandish. I mean, the concept—you know—physically, um, also the kind of—you uh, know—how much more death and destru- destruction this the so-called plan uh, would cause, also also among Israelis, of course, um, not just among Palestinians. Just it's really boggling of the mind, <laughs> and on the hostages too. I mean. Um, you know the families themselves have gotten organized, and they, I would say, are doing much, much more. Um, you know, to free their loved ones than the government is. They're trying to get the issue out. They're sharing the stories. Um, they've, they've got, you know, uh, a campaign running. Um, and and frankly, you know, it's absolutely heartbreaking that they are being left behind. I mean, literally. I think that, um, you know, the government spokespeople are sort of careful to say it outright, but I think that what they're saying in a coded way is that your loved ones might be sacrificed for this war. Um, And I think that, you know, what, what we're hearing from the families of the hostages is No, we have to start with the hostages Um, and and we're hearing also signaling from the other side that there's a willingness to release. um, Maybe women and children or you know other various kinds of combinations and negotiations that that um, the other side is open to and I don't see any signs that the government is kind of credibly engaging those. Um, statements. I mean, whether they're true or not, I don't know. But but I, I would want to hope that the government would would try to engage on that because this is an incredibly um, painful and just an awful situation to be in. I mean, we're talking about more than 200 people. Um, who, who are, you know, being held um, uh, inside of Gaza. So um, yeah, sadly, I think it's not being taken seriously. And I think like residents of, you know, that area of the Gaza envelope in general, they are being forgotten yet again. I mean, they've been neglected and forgotten by uh, successive governments for, for years. And so we're seeing this again, but of course on a level that's that's, you know, just compounded and just so painful.
0: All right. Thanks for that. Um, I, I want to stick with you for a second. And I, I also should say to all of you, I have so many more questions. We have some in the box. So uh, you guys are all being actually very, very tight with your answers, but we're going to try to be a little more lightning-ish, and I'm going to start shutting up more. So Tanya, what do you think Israel's end game is with this military offensive? Do they have an end game? And, and what sort of engagement do you, do you think could impact their their calculus from the international community from from grassroots i mean and and, and is anyone doing that <laughs>
2: So, I think that the government right now, in my mind, they are driven by hubris, this this concept that they can eradicate Hamas. Um, You know, you might be able to eradicate certain kinds of infrastructure, but, you know, uh, there's an ideology here that I think, you know, you're only increasing radicalization, not just here in the region, uh, worldwide. So, um, I think that they think that that's their end game, but obviously, that's not what's actually going to happen. Um, And, and yeah, in terms of, of, uh, you know, uh, what can be done, I think that the only actor that is relevant is the US. Um, So the US needs to step up. Uh, We're seeing these sort of tepid uh, statements in recent days about the humanitarian situation and about international law—it's not enough. Um, and I think also I want to echo what Omar was talking about—that I think this kind of bear hug that the U.S. has given Israel in the wake of the the, the heinous uh, attacks on October seventh are counterproductive because it's it's going just too far. Um, you know, equating all of Gaza with ISIS or um, you know saying they're worse than the Nazis—I've seen these. these these kinds of statements, Um, it's really leading to the dehumanization of all of Gaza. I think people are very confused now, Um, you know, this idea that the the, the U.S. officials are echoing Israel's talking points, like you said, Lara, about, um, you know, victims in Gaza of Israeli airstrikes um, are are victims actually of Hamas. Um, And so they're giving Israel a green light to commit war crimes. and, And yeah, maybe worse, maybe we'll determine down the line that it's worse than that. And I think that we need to reiterate that Israel is making choices um, in fighting this war. And even if you think it was legitimate that it engaged in an attack and it responded to October 7th, I still think it's really important that we acknowledge Israel is making choices in how to fight that war. Um, and, And the U.S. and other allies of Israel need to step in, because what it's doing now is obviously horrendous uh, for Gaza um, and for Palestinians, but it's also in in my mind, it's undermining Israel, it's ruining Israel, it's ruining um, every principle that um, uh, people worldwide think they stand for when they talk about democracy, when they talk about international law. And I agree very much with Omar that this will have echoes um, around the world So it's important whether you care about Israel and Palestine or not, um, it's important to all of us that intervention happens. And it must happen by the US and very strongly. Humanitarian aid is not enough. We need to really stop uh, this massacre
1: that's unfolding.
0: Thank you. And I would also just say for Echoes, we had a six-year-old Palestinian-American child stabbed to death in Chicago this weekend by someone who was enraged by right-wing TV and um, support for Israel. So um, we see echoes already. Um, let's see, Nor. let's see. I'm sorry, I've got, a, I've got so many questions in the box and in the Q&A box of my own. Nor, I wanna ask you about two things. Um, I wanna ask you about the PA. What role is there for the PA to play? Does it have any role? Does it have any ability to play a role? Um, so three part question, PA, other Arab states that have relationships. And we have multiple questions in the box about Hamas. Um, and these range from the attitudes of people in Gaza towards Hamas, the role of Hamas going forward, is there a role? Um, the role of Hamas in continuing to shoot rockets. Um, any, it, those are, those are three pieces. So PA, other states in the region, and Hamas. And you can take any part of any of those you want. You want whipped cream with that? <laughs> yeah, yes, actually, actually, I would. Thanks and sprinkles.
1: Okay, so let me let me start with uh, Hamas because I think it's very important to kind of um, uh, unpack uh, a lot of the things that people have been hearing. Uh, and let me say at the offset, uh, okay, even Nora, it's quite- you
0: you you don't have to worry about length. You can talk as long as you want. This is a okay. big so. I, I, I,
1: it, it, it may be obvious, but I want to say it. I'm a secular, very, very, very progressive uh, woman who stands to the far left of anything left in our political spectrum in Palestine. But I'm also an objective uh, person. And um, it concerns me that we are painting Hamas as one thing because they're not one thing. Um, I do not agree with their political disposition, I don't agree with uh, their, uh, um, even their agenda for liberation, but I cannot deny that they are a significant and influential actor in Palestinian politics. A very recent actor in, in, in Palestinian politics, I might add, but a significant one nonetheless. Now we can pontificate and talk about how Hamas has come to be so popular, but I think in a nutshell, we need to remember Hamas was born in the late 80s. He was given plenty of space to, uh, you know, uh, 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 carry out activities and so on, because the thinking in the Israeli security establishment at the time was that these people will undermine the Palestinian national movement. So let them do what they want. Uh, they'll get into an internal fight, and you know, uh, this, this will all work out. So Hamas is not part of the PLO uh, but it, it came about at a time when there was an uprising um, in in Palestine against the Israeli occupation. It was a popular protest the, the First Intifada. Um, but it was it was a, a very important crossroad for Palestinians in the occupied territory, the First Intifada because it was a time when they organized, uh, in inside the occupied territory, when they confronted the uh, Israeli occupation, and and um, in in a political manner, in 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 logistics, in education, in everything, so them being born in that time gave them an opportunity to kind of rise and and be an active participant. But long before they had any military wing or any involvement in. Um, what what is uh, what is called armed struggle uh, in Palestine? And even long before they started uh, uh, the the uh, suicide bombings, which uh, was, you know, uh, not just controversial, but it was something that I think ate and and chipped away at our soul as a nation. and uh, and I'm glad it ended. So um, then comes Oslo, right? the Oslo Accords, the uh, fake facade of a peace process the promises, the grand promises of liberty and freedom through negotiations, uh, through the rehabilitation of Palestinians into good old boys and girls who will now wear suits and speak as they should and shake hands and talk as they should and act nice and prove their worth, right? Prove their credentials to the international community so that this community may be generous enough to give them independence. Well, it didn't work out like that. And the peace camp in Palestine was made uh, into fools because for 30 years, instead of progress, we had more settlements, more colonization, more entrenchment of apartheid policies, more entrenchment of persecution, uh, um, um, living standards plummeting. Um, uh, um, A Palestinian authority that is called an authority, although it has no authority, uh, effectively, on the ground, and an authority that is, in many ways, compelled to um, coordinate and and cooperate with the occupier in order to provide the bare minimum services, and in so doing, normalizing that kind of subservience uh, to the point where all the lines have been blurred. And that's been extremely, uh, in my mind, detrimental to the Palestinian national movement and to the Palestinian political body politique because it, it's, it's become harder and harder, I think, for those who've been so involved in the machination of the PA to draw the line between things you have to do because you're under occupation and things that will make your life more comfortable on a personal level, right? So you're an official, you go get those VIP passes uh, from the Israelis while you forget that the rest of your people are humiliated at checkpoints. And on and on the examples continue. And then when the elections happened in 2006, following a second wave of intifada, where Hamas provided answers to the Palestinians, right? Israeli violence confronted with Palestinian violence, and a vicious cycle ensues. And Yasser Arafat is laid siege to, and then he uh, is killed for all, all intents and purposes. And a Palestinian leader emerges who promises that the, he will deliver us to freedom, right? Because he he is the uh, the Messiah, right? Mahmoud Abbas. He is the one. That is really committed to the peace process really committed to nonviolence and the americans love him and the israelis are willing to work with him but in the elections people were thinking about domestic politics about the failings of this experiment and they voted fatah out and voting fatah out wasn't just about corruption it was also about um about Palestinians not wanting to feel that they were under the boot all the time, right? And thinking that, you know, we need to try an alternative. Um, and just as a side note, I think it's important to remember that even if those in Gaza had voted for Hamas, it, that is irrelevant, right? In the context of what we're talking about in terms of war, people's politics, civilians' politics do not justify uh, uh, putting them in harm's way. That, that's a very dangerous uh, um, kind of line that would justify all sorts of things uh, in all sorts of places. Having said that, um, I think the experience that Hamas has had in governing Gaza, since it took over the Strip violently, very brutally, I was there, I covered it, um, has uh, um, kind of put Hamas on a, on a maturity on steroid path. 17 years of being, I wouldn't say fully uh, uh, responsible for governing uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza, but pretty much in control of their day-to-day, right? They don't really provide them with salaries. They don't provide them with services. These come through the PA and the international community. But ultimately, Hamas is the one that runs everything else, right? And people depend on it and they need it. And so Hamas had to learn quickly how to govern because it was used to being in the opposition. And and I, you know, objectively, I would say that there were those in Hamas, in the political wing in Hamas, because we have to also make that distinction, Um, regardless, again, of of our assessment of the politics. The military wing in Hamas and the political wing in Hamas are not one in the same. And they don't, uh, um, the military wing does not take its orders from the political wing. Right, which is an anomaly in Palestinian politics. Usually, the the armed the the fighters would follow the politicians in the traditional Palestinian national movement. In Hamas, that is not the case. Um, for many reasons, including those who support and fund uh, the military so there were the, there were real attempts by Hamas, the the politicians in Hamas, to fit in. The political club to uh, become more mainstream there were attempts to amend their charter they were talking about uh, the two state solution and sixty seven and uh, uh, and even international law and even now since October seven the you know they've been trying to use that language regardless of you know the 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 breaches of international law that uh, their attack entailed um but I think we have to consider the sanctions imposed on Palestinians in 2007 as one of the main factors that led us to where we are now, because being punished for doing the the for saying your opinion, for making a choice, a democratic choice, even if it were to be governed by a rule, hell, Americans did it when they voted for Trump, but nobody can say that they deserve to have. uh uh uh, sanctions imposed on them and then they've been deprived of everything since then and gaza has has really been repeatedly punished for 2006 right it's not the people in the west bank it's you know gaza was blamed for everything and ironically actually in gaza people voted more for fatah than they did for hamas um so the pa uh now in the west bank becoming not just less irrelevant, uh, less relevant, sorry, and less credible, but I think it's safe to say that after October 7 will not be like before it in Palestinian politics. And even if the Americans are holding on to this skeleton of a PA, which has been undermined and weakened and bankrupted uh, also by Israel um, uh, and Israeli sanctions, I, I don't think, that um, American policymakers are looking closely enough and understanding just how comprehensive the, the, um, the consequences of October 7 will be on Palestinian politics, on a predominantly young population that sees that uh, there's nowhere to go, uh, there's no horizon for them. And these fools wearing the suits have no answers, no credibility, no relevance, right? I mean, the PA is so scared of American retribution that it hasn't even declared a day of mourning for 3,000 Palestinians. It hasn't had the courage to to come up and and speak to the nation and mourn. More than 1,300 kids killed. I mean, I, I understand that politics is about the balance of power, but if the Americans in the West think that in order to maintain control and maintain Israel's security, they have to have a, a, a Palestinian, whatever it's called, system or authority that <clears throat> that is indifferent to Palestinians, I think they're gonna be in for another surprise. And the ripple effects of what we're seeing now will be just as violent. They, it amazes me the, the level of irresponsibility, the level of ignorance that, uh, that you can expect to have someone who is derelict on the most fundamental, on the most fundamental. I mean, I've seen the parents and the families of the, the uh, abductees and the hostages in Israel, blaming the government rightly for not speaking to them, right? Blaming Netanyahu for not talking to them. We haven't heard from anybody. Nobody, not one. We saw a small recorded statement from the prime minister and that's it. And it sounded like an international official. So this, PA, in its present form, cannot survive all of this. It can't. It shouldn't. It should not. And Hamas is not going to go away. It will be pounded. It will be hurting. But it's not going to go away. And the fact that it was able to attack the Israeli military in the audacious manner that it did uh, will... Add to its popularity, I'm, I'm sorry to be so brutally honest, but in a, in a in such a brutal situation, brutality is, you know, I don't know, it's like a snowball. Um, so Hamas it will be inescapable. I don't care what Netanyahu thinks, and I think that he, he and his cabinet are lying to the Israeli public. They know. They cannot get rid of Hamas. They can destroy all of Gaza. Um, And that has nothing to do with popularity. But this is an idea, an ideology. You cannot fight ideologies with guns. It doesn't work. It has never worked. Um, So, you know, it's, it's tragic, I think, in so many ways that we have to wait for all the killing to finish before we come back and have the same conversation about Whoa, woe is me, you know, they were wrong. They thought they could do it, but they didn't. Well, they won't. And that's just as, you know, um, but I think after all of that, we're gonna we're gonna see many faces exit in Israel and in Palestine. Sorry, I took long.
0: No, no, I, I appreciate that. That's all really important. I found myself thinking while you were talking about that we haven't talked about the West Bank at all, um, where the PA is ostensibly in control, but we're, as Omar said, it's already been um, a, an incredibly um, devastating year for Palestinians. And since October 7th, we've seen um, in, in another another uptick in in violence by settlers in the IDF and a, a, a huge number of people. I think it's more than 50 Palestinians killed just since October 62. 7th. 62, since October 7th in the West Bank, um, which again speaks to the, the credibility yeah. of the PA. Um, it, right. It's
1: disrupted everything in daily life. I mean, I I can tell you that schools are not uh, functioning properly. Many are sending kids home early. People aren't able to get to work, and the fact that the government can't do anything to protect ordinary people just adds to the to everything else we were talking about.
0: Thank you. All right, we are going to wind this up. I want to ask Tanya and Omar each one shortish question. Um, And it's, uh, I I guess, for Tanya, I want to ask you, and this is a question that's in the box. you know Someone says, I raise all these arguments, and the answer I get is, well, what should Israel have done after this horrible attack? As if there's this inevitability to this. There was no option except to do X. Um, Speaking as an Israeli, speaking as a human rights advocate and expert on on international law and and conflict, can you talk about was this inevitable or what should Israel have done instead?
2: I mean, I think, you know, asking a a human rights advocate for, I don't know, military or political strategy is probably you're barking up the wrong tree. Um, You can probably guess what I would say, which is uh, what it can't do. And what it can't do is punish civilians for actions over which they have no control. Um, It can't turn off the water. It can't turn off the electricity. These are not legitimate responses um, and and I would say beyond that, um, you know, as as much as we are stuck in the exact moment of how how do how do we respond to this horrible thing that we saw that happened, you know. Um, uh, You know, leadership is about looking forward. It's about having a vision. It's about having a strategy. And I think, like I said, the Israeli government right now is only acting from a place of vengeance. It's only acting from a place of having to respond. Um, And I think true leadership would look forward and say, okay, there." could be a threat here that we need to deal with. There could be a response that we need to have, but how do we also ensure safety and security for the people who are living under our control? And I don't think anyone can credibly say that the actions that have been taken since October 7th protect Israelis. um, And and of course, um, what we're seeing on the ground is, is, is just mass killing. And destruction in Gaza. So, um, so yeah, that that would be my answer. And 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 I would say, yeah, f- following international law actually would lead us to a place of of uh, better, you know, more stability, more well-being, and I think ultimately also more safety for all all the people in the region.
0: Thank you, and I think it's worth making clear. I mean, the laws of war are about how wars can be fought. It's not that war is illegal. It's not that a nation does not have the rights when it has hostages taken or it's been attacked to respond. The idea of the laws of war, which did not come out of human rights organizations, they came out of nations from the experience of war, is to define what they can and can't do in times of war. Not to say, oh, we're a bunch of naive lefties. You shouldn't fight each other. Can't you just have coffee and agree on the details? Um, Okay, Omar, I want to give you the last word and and maybe I'm going to ask you something that you don't want to answer. If there's something you'd rather answer, that's fine. And I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse or not, but there's been a bunch of questions in the Q&A about like, what can people do? Um, Is this a matter of, you know, open your pocketbook and support NGOs? This is a matter of writing to legislatures it a matter of sharing information. What are your thoughts of what people who are here who are of good conscience can do right now? And if you don't want to answer that and want to answer something else, you can do that too.
3: No, I mean I can try to answer that. Although, um, you know, maybe just to add something to to to, to, to Tanya's answer, I think part of what um, you know what's what the Israeli government should have done is is actually listen to what. Former israeli kogat and other military leaders had been saying for many years which is that you know there was talk of a marshall plan for gaza the israeli security establishment understood well that caging 2.2 million people in an open-air prison isn't exactly the recipe for long-term stability much less the human rights of people it's always been the political establishment that has insisted you know on the status quo so this isn't just a, a human rights imperative i mean let's look at what happened in 2018 right? When the march of return, the protests at the Gaza fence took place. And by the way, Israel gunned down people demonstrating. Um, What was the answer? Egypt, which had largely sealed Rafah for five years, for the last five years largely opened it. There was a recognition that the way to address um, the uh, deep-seated repression and and frustration Palestinian people felt was to allow them to have their basic right to freedom of movement. It's not a, you know, uh, I think that and it's largely been more open. I mean, let's not say since since that point. In terms of what people can do, look, I think um, it's important um, that in these mo- in moments like this, that the, the voices are being raised. Um, and and there's so many different challenges we're facing, right? Laura, you mentioned the U.S. context and how how um, you know this is you know the the hate crime, but also there's a moment now where there is pushback on the ability to do this to even express views that are critical in the US and Europe. Laura, you've been documenting documenting this for for years, but I think there's a place to push back on that. There's a place for for folks to, you know, support uh, measures in the US Congress and elsewhere and at the UN, depending on what your various entry point is that are calling for this thing to end. So I think, you know, the immediate action needs to be that people raise their voices because we saw what happened, um, you know, the last time, I think it was 2021, you know, when it was some level of popular pressure in the US, for example, that I think from reporting pushed the Biden administration to lean a bit harder, you know, on the Israelis at that time. Again, uh, Still woefully inadequate, but there was at least some pressure that was created. So I think we need voices to be raised, especially for those in the U.S. and those in Europe. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, I think it's important we try and provide the context here, not to justify uh, what took place um, there. But there, ha- you know, I think the October seventh events has led to a scenario where people are almost. Um, are, are not going back to the, the closure, the long-term occupation, the apartheid, the persecution. So I think it's important that we're not only raising our voices, but we're doing so in a way that's principled, that's moral, but also is providing that bigger picture. I'll stop there.
0: Thank you. That's a, a really constructive place to stop. Um, we ran a little bit over time, but I, I didn't want to cut off anything. This is such a such a rich conversation. Um, Nora, I
1: just say yes. one thing? Um, I think I need to say it. Um, as a Palestinian, not as an analyst. Um, These are very, very complex times uh, for all of us. And as a Palestinian, I have to um, say that it warms my heart and I have a lot of admiration for uh, brave Israeli and American Jewish voices that have not stopped and that have not lost Uh, focus of what you know of the important things and uh, and I know that that takes a lot of courage and I understand that it's done in an atmosphere of fear and pain and I know that maybe you're not hearing as much from us about your pain uh understanding the complexities and understanding the um the dynamics and the fact that maybe there was no breathing room perhaps for that uh, 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 conversation to happen, but truly, I, you know, I fear that a piece of our soul is being lost in this war, and when I saw the pictures and the videos coming out of New York and D.C., um, on a personal level, it brought me to tears because it gave me some hope, uh, and I just I wanted to share that because I think it's important. We're not talking to each other as much as we uh, we would be uh, maybe under um, less crazy circumstances. Um, and there's so much to unpack about what what is happening. but i I think it's important that um, that I say that we see these things, we see these statements, we see these principled positions, and they do mean a lot. So I just wanted to say that
0: thank you so much for that Noor, and I'm sure for for people who are tuning into this that is that, that means that means so much I will say and I'm I'm echoing words that um, Muhammad al Kurd said once on a, a podcast or a webinar we did with him which is as difficult as you may find it to talk about these things imagine how much harder it is to live them um and it, it does uh I think there's some humility that goes with uh the with all of this for 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 those of us who are standing in this position that that's it's it's many it, Whatever courage it takes to stand up is far less than the courage it takes to survive it. Um, all right, so we're going to close it here. Thank you all, Omar, Tanya, Noor, for joining me, for taking all of this time, for your your honesty and and compassion and in just. I, I have to say that I I don't feel um, any particular optimism right now about the world, but but conversations like this um, make me um, feel like there's some hope for humanity. So thank you for that. Um, And thank you to everyone who joined us um, for this event, or who's now listening to this event or watching it after the fact. Um, For everyone, please check back at our website, www.fmbp.org. We'll post a list of uh, resources relating to this conversation. And you can also find information about future programming, and you can subscribe if you want to get notices and all of that stuff. So with that, um, I send all of you my hopes for safety and 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 resilience in this very very dark time, and that will be. Um, hopefully, we can meet again to discuss this again in the future when things are better. Um, thank you. Thank you.